1: Hello and welcome back to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. Well, hold on to your data. The big news this week is the security breach at Optus. Last week it was revealed that the personal information of many present and former customers of the major telecommunication company have been compromised. The Minister for Cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, told the ABC's 7.30 that 9.8 million Australians may have had basic personal information stolen – while 2.8 million may have had extensive personal information accessed, such as their passport details or driver's licence. Sadly, it's not the first breach, and it won't be the last. According to the Australian Cyber Security Centre, an essential service or critical infrastructure is attacked every 32 minutes. So in light of this, we ask what role do journalists have in reporting on cyber attacks and data security? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Johnny Blackley, formerly of SBS and now an investigative journalist for Choice, Australia's leading consumer advocacy group. Johnny, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you, Tina. Nick Bonahardi also joins us. He's the technology editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. Nick, welcome to Fourth Estate.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: And Amber Schultz. She's an associate editor and an investigative journalist for Crikey. Amber, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Hey, Tina. All right, well, let's jump right in. The Optus data breach has affected millions of Australians. Nick, were you surprised about how this story has unfolded as we've continued to find out more and more?
2: It's the nature of a hack like this that the information doesn't come out immediately. It takes time for people to investigate. And so in that sense, no, I haven't been surprised at the pace of information. But it does seem like Optus was initially very forthcoming uh, in the first days and had a wide-ranging media conference with the CEO answer questions pretty fully and, and at length, and that their communication strategy does seem to have changed in later days to uh, be a little more tight-lipped. Mm.
1: Uh, Johnny, any surprises for you?
2: Um, I think the big surprise has been
3: Optus's, yeah response, as Nick mentioned. I think, um, particularly in the last couple of days and this week, it seemed very amateurish to me. Um, the interview that the corporate affairs person did on, I think it was 2GB, Um, talking about how, you know, she was also a victim of this hack, I think, was a pretty tone-deaf response. And I think, yeah, it's been interesting to see um, the way that the media has gone from, I guess, just kind of accepting Optus' narrative to really challenging it about the sophistication of the hack as people like Claire Neal have challenged. Um, that
1: response. Uh, Nick, just to put this into perspective, how does this data breach compare to others within Australia?
2: So there have been larger breaches in Australia just by the sheer number of people affected. So for example, the graphic design software platform Canva suffered a very large breach a couple of years back, but that was very different kinds of data. They didn't collect the very personal information that Optus appears to have collected and retained on an enormous number of their customers. That's things like Medicare numbers, passport numbers, driver's license numbers. And so if you're comparing both the size of the attack and the sensitivity of the information that is taken, it looks to be the largest in the country. And in fact, relatively relative to Australia's population it is one of the largest attacks on a country in the world.
1: So we've mentioned that, uh, you know, how the, the Australian media has gone from accepting the line uh, to actually really challenging Optus on this. Uh, Amber, do you think the Australian media has responsibly reported on this data breach without feeding into the panic or the fear that can go along with that?
0: say it's been fairly responsible and this is a huge data breach with with so many people impacted and I think it's absolutely right to keep drilling down on Optus about their claims that this was a sophisticated attack which you know Clara Neal has completely rebuffed Um, and and it is it it could be quite serious you know this they do have 100 points of ID there could be significant fraud that comes of this so I think the attention has been um, warranted though saturated. Um, And I think the media is, you know, I haven't seen too much fear mongering. I have seen quite straight down the line reporting, which has been refreshing.
2: If I might add to that, I think that there's been a sort of latent buildup of attention on cyber issues. They're often very difficult to report because they lack something that is tangible. So for example, statistically, like there are constant attacks on critical infrastructure, like you mentioned earlier, or constant attacks on banks. It's like, well, that's, a bit abstract. What does that actually mean for me, a consumer? And so oftentimes these stories are not widely picked up in the media because they are not something that we can make intelligible and tangible for readers or listeners or viewers, depending on the medium. And so this attack is both about Optus and what specifically occurred here, but there's also this wider policy debate happening. How do we have our privacy laws? What does this say about cyber security defenses? Are we investing enough? And I think that's also played into the volume of coverage that we're seeing
1: well understandably everyone wants to know who's responsible and and who's to blame uh, now we've got a lot of the government pointing the finger and now the bill to optus as it would seem uh, while the ceo of optus on the on the other hand told abc in an interview that we you know we know this is the work of of some bad actors and really they're the villains in this story do you think the villain archetype is really helpful in in getting to the bottom of this journey
3: if you have to say we are not the villains four times in an interview maybe you are the villains but um or if you're not the villains you're just uh, too much hey yeah maybe maybe or if you're not the villains you're just the unwitting fool that let the villains in so i think there's a lot of um a lot to be said about officers response to this and i think um the media has done a responsible job in in really centering tech experts and people who actually know this stuff a lot better than your average reporter does um, and centering those voices um, when it, and, and maybe trusting those voices more than trusting, say, Optus's voice when it comes to, the. as Amber was mentioning, sophistication of
1: the hack. Johnny, you work for Consumer Advocacy Group Choice. Now, it makes sense that the media will focus on what consumers can do as well as reporting on the government and industry response. Do you think there's been a balance in emphasising individual responsibility and, uh, as well as systemic responsibility in the media?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot that individuals do have to do now that their data has been breached, things like credit reporting, monitoring and stuff like that, and replacing your ID documents. But um, in in the article that I wrote yesterday, um, I was also really hoping to drive home at the end of the article the emphasis that even though... Um, there's a lot that individual consumers do have to do now. It shouldn't, at the end of the day, be up to them to have to mop up this mess that is essentially of Optus is making.
1: Nick, we've had a number of laws passed in the last two years that put obligations on critical infrastructures like telcos to address cyber threats. The ministerial powers have also increased recently. Are you keeping a close eye to, to report on, on how this may be used in the Optus breach?
2: Yeah, so the government has said that the telecommunications industry argued for and ultimately received essentially a carve out of some of these provisions that apply to other industries. So they're not subject to quite as onerous obligations uh, as some other sectors. Now, the basis for that is basically the telecommunications sector said, look, we're very sophisticated. We understand cyber, we understand data and technology and And we can handle it largely on our own. That's a claim that the government is now rubbishing and and all but saying that they will change in terms of how those laws apply. So that's one facet of the the legislation I'm expecting the governments to bring in. And then the second is there's been long awaited changes to how privacy law works in this country. There's been numerous Law Reform Commission reports that have recommended changes and very little has happened. spoke to a privacy expert yesterday who described enforcement as basically a black hole, at least until the tenure of the current privacy commissioner. Um, so, Mark Dreyfus has said just this morning that he's going to look at bringing in changes to privacy acts. Now, that's also going to be a really important thing for the media, right? Like this is not just about data and privacy. The Privacy Act is a broad thing. So, that's going to be a conversation for journalists about if there are changes in there on, say, letting individual people sue for privacy breaches. Are journalists at risk? of breaching that if they go and do a sort of foot in the door style interview or, or really rigorously report a story or overstep the mark, perhaps it could be a good way of ensuring that journalists don't breach people's privacy. That, so that's going to be a fascinating debate to cover, not only from a technology perspective, but also a media perspective.
1: Amber, do you think this could perhaps allow, the gov- you know, allow governments uh, more broadly to stymie sort of journalists' efforts when it comes to holding power to account?
0: I mean, it's really hard to say, as Nick said, you know, the Privacy Act is so broad and the government keeps saying it will be making announcements but hasn't really said what announcements it'll make it just keeps teasing us with, you know, these announcements to come, but I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, what kind of changes are proposed, I mean you know, we know that companies collect far too much data, they don't store it well, um, and they hold on to it for way too long, which I think the Optus breach really, really revealed. You know, people are asking why four years down the line after not being a customer, why Optus still has its data. So I think when it comes to Data management, data storage, this could have really wide-ranging impacts, but the impacts on journalists, I think, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what Claire O'Neill announces.
1: You mm-hmm. wrote an article comparing the SWIFT government response to the Optus breach with the NDIS data breach. Why do you think there's been a different response by the media this time?
0: Well, I mean, this this is what always happens with people with disabilities or those at risk or, or with vulnerabilities. We rarely see the kind of hyper focus. There are differences. The NDIS data breach impacted um, far fewer people than uh, than the Optus breach did. So, you know, this this breach it occurred in May, and it's a cloud management software system that is routinely used by a lot of NDIS companies and out of home care organizations, so foster care, aged care, so it wasn't a breach of NDIS's data itself, it was the data about NDIS clients or aged care residents that was uploaded to the system. Um, But I think the main thing is that while Optus has been in the spotlight and has been really scrutinized, you know, how many were impacted, what information was accessed, where it's gone, um, we haven't got any kind of that information about this Data breach affecting NDIS participants. You know, we we don't know how many were impacted. The company uh, that had its data hacked, which is CTARS, um, won't won't release it. Uh, we don't know which, which companies, which NDIS service provider companies. Um, had their data breached, which means we don't, you know, we don't know if those that were impacted were actually told that their data had been released. There's just so little information. And of course, the government didn't respond, it didn't really get picked up by a lot of media organizations, and there's been no changes. So these people with disabilities have um, some really, really sensitive information potentially out there, and, and this information is a lot more sensitive than that was involved in the data hack. You know, this is stuff about people's medical conditions, how their disability is progressing, you know, potentially stigmatised issues like incontinence or, or suicide iterations. So it's a lot more serious in many ways, but didn't get
1: anywhere near the amount of attention or response. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. This week, we're talking about the media's reportage of data security and cyber attacks. I'm joined by Johnny Blackerly, Nick Bonahady, and Amber Schultz. Johnny, we've also seen the media spotlight issues around facial recognition technology this week. Choice has been investigating retailers' use of the technology for quite some time. Did you purposely choose to to, to discuss this in the light of the Optus data breach, while all eyes are, are on data security right now?
3: Uh, no, actually. So we, I mean, we published our initial investigation in in June, I believe. And then we've been doing a series of follow-up articles and follow-up work around that, including the article that went out this week. Um, the timing actually was just purely coincidental. It's been in the works for some time. But um, I think the, the two issues do feed in together because at the end of the day, if, uh, as the Optus Data Act showed, companies are not storing your data properly. The more sensitive data they have on you, the greater the risk. So if Kmart and Bunnings are storing your uh, personal biometric data, which is the equivalent of a fingerprint. Um, if they've got that and the hacker gets access to that, then that's got all kinds of ramifications as well. So the timing ended up being coincidental, but the, the two issues feed in together and, and it all feeds into the Privacy Act review as well that the government's
1: undertaking. Nick, there was a US study recently which looked at how the media reports on cyber security issues. Now, they found historically the media... Reported on the hack of the moment, more so on a service level, but they found that now there's a growing trend of more in-depth reportage looking at root causes, as, as well as the real-world consequences and potential policy solutions. Would you agree that the nuance to to how media report on cybersecurity has changed in recent times?
2: I haven't done nearly the kind of quantitative work that I suspect the authors of that study have done. But I think that it depends in part on the scale of the hack, if that generates the kind of interest among readers necessary to sustain the ongoing more nuanced and detailed reporting, it's probably a major factor. Uh, Another thing is that it takes a long time for the public at large to be educated about technical matters. And so it, it seems likely that as the internet just lasts for longer and becomes an ever greater part of people's lives, hopefully they will gain a greater baseline understanding that then enables more detailed reporting to penetrate into the public consciousness.
1: Amber, would you agree with Nick's summation of that?
0: Look, yes, absolutely. I think it's it's really interesting that um, you know people's literacy on on their data and how is it stored is is probably not fantastic. And as we, you know, store more and more data, biometrics, uh, information, facial recognition, everything, we're going to have to keep asking these really difficult questions about what happens to that data, what the rules around it are, and how it's stored. And I think um, one good example would be my health record. You know, the government is asking, did ask everyone to agree to have all their their medical information sort of um, Lumped together and and accessible by a, you know a single port of entry, uh, and then a 2019 audit found that you know the government failed to manage security risks and privacy risks. So, you know it's all well and good for all these companies and organisations to hold out their hand and say give us give us our data, but people aren't aware of how it's stored, how it's used, and there's just not a lot of oversight um, a- a about the
1: protections that we're you know given. Johnny do you think we're we're not as I guess the public on a on a broader scale we're not as savvy as uh, as we should be when it comes to data storage I think a lot of people are really confused by what this all means and what the broader implications are
3: Yeah I think uh, generally people only really think about these issues when something goes wrong uh, you're not thinking about it when uh, yeah, as Amber mentioned, the, you're handing over your health records to a doctor who's uploading them onto a website, or you know, even your real estate agents requesting all this personal information for you to apply for a rental property. Um, we're not thinking about it as we consume it on an everyday basis, as we hand over our data. There's only these brief, and brief moments of attention when something goes wrong in this office case. Um, but I think, there needs to be greater protections and and people need to kind of keep this in mind on an everyday level as well when we do hand over our data. But it's hard because at the end of the day, we live so much of our lives online um, and these companies uh, mandate us, you know, they force us to hand over our data if we want to get their services. Um, So, yeah, I think there needs to be more consideration of that general risk.
1: Nick, how do you think that... The media can help the broader public become a little bit more data or data security literate in a sense without creating that sort of big brother fear kind of mongering that we've been talking about that we we don't really want to create uh, because there's all, already I, I I feel a lot of suspicion around, uh, you know, large corporations, how they hold our data, um, you know how that plays into government and 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 all that sort of thing data retention how do we how do we inform the public to to become a little bit more literate around these issues
2: the key thing i think is that there is genuine reason to be concerned about big brother style data collection it is not something that has been feasible at any time in human history until now the technology has evolved to a point where governments and companies can obtain enormous amounts of data on their people and as we've seen in some authoritarian regimes overseas use it for incredibly nefarious purposes and even in very advanced liberal western democracies there have been plenty of examples where companies and, and governments have used it in the wrong way and that is something that people should be watchful for as for striking the balance between alarmism and and the truth I think it's just the basic things of reporting, ensuring that everyone has the adequate right of reply, ensuring that we double check our facts, ensuring that the pieces are presented in in a balanced manner. I don't think there's any specifics for cyber reporting really, except that because it is such a technical area, it's an area in which the standard dilemmas about how much language reveals versus how much hides are probably heightened. And so to give an example of that, The Optus CEO has described this hack as being sophisticated, as um, Amber was saying, whereas the government has said it is, quote, quite basic. Now, one of those positions is right and one of them is wrong. Sophisticated and quite basic are not reconcilable terms. But to get to the bottom of that, we'll have to have some quite detailed technical explanation of how exactly this hack was conducted. Similarly, the data has been described as, quote, encrypted. Now, do we, does that mean that it was encrypted when it was on the Optus' service, but not when it was sent out? Does that mean it was encrypted only in transit as almost all internet communications now are? Again, there's going to need to be some technical analysis, but it is our job to try and present that technical analysis because, of course, most people do not spend their time fussing over such things. It's our job to present that in plain English, which both Optus and the Minister have done in different ways, but to do it in a non-partisan balanced way. Neutral way such that our readers can be properly informed of the truth. And I know that sounds very, you know, probably preachy and high minded, but hey, you've got to strive for it, right?
0: <laughs> well, we can only hope. Amber? You know, it, it is a really difficult thing to wrap your head around. And if you're, you know, if you're just a general member of the public and you've got a million other things going on, I, I don't, you know, I do agree that. People need to be a little bit more aware of it, but I'm not sure it's fair to put the onus on them into understanding it. You know, it is really complex and it is a journalist's role to try and make that less complex. But I think it would be fair for us to expect that uh, we can have a little bit of trust and faith in those systems. And yes, be wary of these big brother things and yes, try and have a little bit more literacy. But I don't think the onus should be on the person and I don't think a person should have to read numerous news articles of journalists driving to get to the bottom of it just to understand what their mandatory data, um, it, what's happening with their with the data that they had to, you know, put forward to to function in society.
1: There've been reports about threats and ransoms from the alleged Optus hacker, or. Possibly opportuni- opportunistic scammers. It depends, I guess, how you look at it. How wary should the media be when reporting on these threats and verifying how legitimate they are? Amber? you know, there were so many uh, texts and sort of scams that
0: emerged from the Optus. There was someone saying, just put $2,000 in my bank account on this text message. (laughs) And while it's important not for the media not to come out and say, oh, this is the hacker, look at at him go. I think it's fair to, you know, to expose the scams that are out there, because we do know that, you know, elderly populations, especially, are are pretty susceptible. So it's It's an important job of the media not to say this is a really common scam, this is going to happen to you, but just to kind of highlight, hey, this is an example of one circulating scam. It might not be ever-present, it might not be, you know, a huge number, but here's an example so that we can educate those who aren't too technologically uh, aware or literate as to what kind of methods are used.
1: Nick?
2: We didn't pay that much attention to those kind of messages that were circulating. We paid more attention to the posts that were being made on hacker forums by someone who claimed to be the Optus hacker themselves on the basis that, that was a person who had a vastly larger amount of data. And I, again, I'm not myself a cybersecurity expert, but there were some things that we could do in the newsroom to verify the legitimate, or not the legitimacy, that person's clearly very illegitimate in some ways, the authenticity of those posts. So one was that there was data that was revealed by that person, a small sample of data, initially 200 records and then 10,000 records. And so in that, there are people's contact information. And so you can contact those people and say, hey, are you an Optus customer? I have your address here. Is that accurate? Of course, we're also at the same time saying there are services that can help you. You should contact Optus, you should contact the government, ensure that you are yourself protected. So giving advice at the same time, but also using that process to verify whether the information that has been released is authentic. One researcher just happened to live near where someone on that list lived and just went around and said, not a City not a Morning Herald journalist, but a, a third party and just said, hey, is this you? And the woman confirmed that it was. So that's a sign that it's genuine. It's not confirmation that details could have been obtained in some previous hack or leaked elsewhere. But that's one thing that journalists did. And another is there's a website called Have I Been Pwned, which is like a, database of email addresses that have been caught up in previous hacks. So if the email address released in these data sets, was not in previous hacks, then it suggests that it is probably fresh information that has been obtained somehow. And then the other thing is that the government has jumped on aspects of the data that's been released in this. And you'd think that the government was being informed by very sophisticated professionals within Australia's cyber spy agencies. And so if, as happened, you had, for example, the government saying, the Health Minister, and the Attorney General and others saying, we are very concerned that Medicare data has been leaked. And that came just after this person leaked a sample that included Medicare numbers, then uh, you would... think it is at least likely that they are, that the government has ascertained that this is genuine. Again, none of this has been 100% verified. It could still be false. It is under investigation. Those are really important caveats and things that we make clear to our readers, but they are signs that we use to ensure that when we take it seriously, we're doing so with an evidential basis.
1: What did we think of the $1 million ransom uh, rumour that's been circulating?
2: Uh, not the highest, but not the lowest. I I think there's been a view that that's that's so low as to be like ridiculous or just comical. Um, Actually, there have been hacks, like there was on on Uber a few years back where where hackers have only demanded or received a few hundred thousand. Part of that is because using this information to make money off people is a laborious and legally risky process. I mean, it's, it's illegal, but the risks of being caught as you go out and individually scam and spam people go up. I mean, there is plenty of this has been weird, right? If you're a hacker, typically you want to contact the company and silence and do it before the notice Mm -hmm. of the hack gets out such that they can avoid embarrassment and have maximum incentive to pay. Uh, So so yeah, it's not the lowest, but then on the high side, there have been hacks that have generated ransoms in the the tens of millions, but they're mostly of a different character, which is where the hacker goes in, uses software to essentially lock up an entire company's networks and then says, pay Mm -hmm. me cash or... I'm not going to let your business function whatsoever. Optus is taking a huge hit here, no doubt, in terms of bad publicity and customer anger and so on, but it is still operating. And so it's not as severe as that kind of hack. So that's my slightly long winded take.
1: (laughs) Well, finally, do you think this Optus data breach will change the discussion on how our data is stored and used? Or do you think, hey, it's just one more data breach? Johnny, to you first?
3: Yeah, I think um, the attention that this Optus hack has brought to privacy and privacy concerns and the Privacy Act, um, it, it, it's definitely changed the conversation, or not maybe not changed the conversation, but it's highlighted the conversation. And I think the thing that it mainly has done is that it's given the government cover to go further on this Privacy Act review than they might have otherwise done so. So um, whether that whether they will and whether what the impact on that will be, but there is a lot of community anger out there. So many people have been caught up with this. And except for some reputational damage, as Nick mentioned, and some, maybe a handful of angry customers who changed providers, there isn't actually any any sense of recourse. There's no fines. Um, so I think that that conversation has been brought to the forefront. Whether that leads to change, I guess we'll have to wait and see.
0: Amber? It's interesting. I mean, even Attorney General Mark Dreyfus he said just this morning, you know, questioning exactly why companies, once they verify your identity with those 100 points of identification, why they need to hold on to it for 10 years. So I think one of the major changes that we will see is that companies will have to delete the data that they store on you. They're no longer going to be able to hold on to that and use that in, in ways we don't really know how. Um, and I think that will be one of the most positive changes, because if, if companies don't have the data, it can't be leaked. You know, if they don't store it, it can't be released.
1: Nick, final thoughts and observations?
2: Yeah. It is possible that under existing law, Optus will have to pay out a whole whack of cash because there's now class action firms circling and there are provisions for class actions under the, the Privacy Act. But Johnny and are absolutely right that um, there's been longstanding calls for reform to give people greater recourse. And I think that this will change the discussion around it. It's funny... When you look at articles, one sort of titular example can be used in media stories for years after something occurs, because it grounds a conversation in the reader's minds and makes complex issues intelligible and relatable. And I think that this is what this hack will provide in this country for discussions about cybersecurity.
1: On that note, I'd like to thank my guests on Fourth Estate this week, Johnny Blackarly. Thanks. Nick Bonahardi. Thank you. And Amber Schultz. Thanks, Tina. And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2 and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A big thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Estate thestateau Thanks, as always, to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe, and catch us next week on 4th Estate.